Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Prophetic Times and Seasons podcast. I am your host, Marcus Moore. Thank you for joining me today. I am so excited about today's podcast. We have so much to talk about. And I am, this is a, a special treat for me today, in particular because I have a special guest with me. So I'm extremely excited and I'm very glad that uh, many of the listeners who have subscribed or have joined me in just sharing with me on this journey of um, reflecting on where we are prophetically and what it truly means to reimagine what it, uh, what it means to be prophetic and spiritual today. Um, we are on a journey. We are on a journey. We're learning, we're, we're critiquing, we're reflecting. And um, I think it's an exciting time to be able to do so. Uh, so for today's topic, we are reflecting on the evangelical and prophetic church. Um, we're going to you know, spend some time critiquing really the current state of the prophetic and popular church um, and dig deep into what that means for us today. And so I am eager to get started with today's interview and so glad to have Bishop Jeremiah Hackley with us. Um, I know Bishop Hackley to be uh, a friend, also a mentor. Uh, Bishop Hackley is also a preacher, a prophet, a theologian, uh, and I would probably say most importantly, a husband and a father um, who has done some significant things in his life. He's, he's a young man, but also a very accomplished uh, person that I've had the privilege of getting to know. I think I, I've known Bishop Hackley for um, at least seven years now, if not more. And so I am honored to, to have him join today's podcast with me. Um, and so we're going to get started. We're going to get started. And I am going to let Bishop Hackley just kind of come in and share a little bit about himself with us today. And then we'll move from there. Bishop Hackley, how are you? I am phenomenal. It is good to be with you here uh, on this great um, prophetic platform that encourages uh, listeners to uh, dig deeper into the subject and the context of uh, what we are and who we are to be prophetically. I bring you greetings from uh, the Morehouse School of Religion here in Atlanta, the spirit of Benjamin Elijah Mays and all of the uh, great academicians and uh, of course our uh, dean uh, the reverend dr joseph evans who we assist here uh, he has been uh, very much formative in the context of what prophetic is becoming in this generation and uh and so i um, am extremely thankful to be uh, studying uh, with uh, you know people in his caliber and people such as Dr. Riggins Earl and other people. But uh, in bringing those things uh, to where I am today, it's taken me some time to get here and it's taken me some life experience to get here. And so uh, Marcus, um, I don't think that uh, my prophetic context would be as um, authentic without uh, my relationship with you and our uh, journeys together uh, in, uh, in interrogating what it means to be prophetic at this time in this country. Um, the divine dissatisfaction that we have both shared about 
what is going on on the landscape of the church and the community uh, that surrounds the church interrogating that subject matter has been a part of our uh, struggle and and people don't like that word i know they don't like that in evangelic evangelical church they don't like the word struggle but um they need to come to ethics and they'll be all right with the word after they come to take a class in ethics they'll be okay with the word struggle but uh, i don't know how you build muscle without struggle but anyway let me not deal with that and all of these um all of this um uh, witchcraft verbiage that people are using here in church these days but <laughs> but <laughs> But 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 let me let me say that um, I am committed to liberation. My journey began. I had a memory yesterday of being, uh, I want to say, about five years old in my uncle's church and playing on the piano on Sundays and being in prayer on Tuesday nights with my grandma and my aunties. I remember going to my mama's church and tarrying. Um, I remember going to granddaddy's church and reading out of the hymn book. And, uh, and so I was exposed to a lot very young um, and all three of those churches had different definitions of prophetic. Uh, and, and so I grew up with a mixture of contextuality and had to find a balance because the truth is, is that they were competing for my attention and they were competing for my loyalty to their doctrine, which in essence broke me enough for me to find God for real. And that's, um, that's a prophetic journey, a, a, a prophetic person, a prophet, a, someone who's on prophetic assignment must be broken by the tensions of the, uh, the toil of the generation in order for them to find the oil within themselves. Um, and uh, it must almost rip you apart inside because everything that has been um let me say this we think it's been made in the image of god but we've tried to make god in the image of us through the tool of the prophetic and god has to rip that context apart so that we might see uh the true prophetic which which um which is described in luke um preaching the gospel to the poor you know setting at liberty them that are captive god's context of the prophetic in the biblical um biblical context always has to do with liberation from unrighteous authority and empire and domination uh and these other things well they're fun <laughs> <laughs> Wow. We'll start our we'll start our conversation right there. <laughs> yeah, Bishop, you, you you came out throwing punches already. It's too early. We haven't even gotten into the meat of our discussion. I didn't name yet. any names. I didn't bring anybody's name up yet. We're not on oh. Larry. Tell hi, Larry. 
No, no, that that was good. I mean, you you definitely said I think some some important uh, some important things that we need to explore. I'm I'm curious though to to kind of uh, dig into your journey a little bit more and and to also introduce you to the audience. Um, I would love to know where 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 did you grow up? Um, your name is Jeremiah. Where yeah. did that come from? Jeremiah is uh, let let's. Let's go back to my, my birth. Um, I was born in Alexandria, Virginia, which is um, actually the same place my father and my grandfather, we were all born in the same hospital. Um, and I was born into, um, I, I can only say that my father and my grandfather must not have followed the tradition because my you know great uncles they were preachers or whatever and then when i looked into my my last name um i, I find out when i got here that i was born the fourth great grandson of john um john hackley and john was the founder of the anti-slavery baptist association but he was a he was he was born a slave on the plantation in Culpeper, virginia so the hackleys eventually migrated um, from Culpeper, Virginia uh, out of the, the, the African um, dimension. And John escapes to uh, Niles, Michigan and, and founds the Anti-Slavery Baptist Association. That's my fourth great grandfather. However, my grandfather and my father was a part of that line that stayed in Virginia. Um, you know, why, whether by force or choice, I'm not sure. Uh, when I got here, there was a tension. I was born on Valentine's Day um, in 1981, the same year that uh, Bob Marley died, the same year that um, the black world, I feel like, lost its, uh, lost its savor. I feel like I came in that year. Uh, in that year, I was born. My mother wanted me to be named Jeremiah. My grandmother wanted me to be named after my father. My father won. The Lord spoke to me in high school and said, I call you Jeremiah. I don't tell this story often. And, um, and when I heard that voice of God clear, my uh, first my first call was to my mother and i said mom the lord spoke to me and said that my name is jeremiah she said that is god she said that is the name that you were supposed to have at birth and so i went through the legal uh, the legal and the spiritual and the social contextualizing of a changed name uh, very hard to do for someone who in this Western culture um, is understood to be, uh, you know, defined by your, your patriarchy or, the, or the, the identity that your father gives you. But one thing I could not continue was the nature that carried, the, that the name carried in other, other contexts. Lord never said change the last name, just said I call you Jeremiah. That is what I got when I got into that revelation or into that flow. 
It means appointed of God or the appointment of God or of y'all, however you want to say it. Um, everything became divine appointments from there. I mean, from that time, um, I started working from, for Numa Life Publishing. Uh, we were publishing uh, Dr. Miles Monroe, Bishop Jiggs. Uh, we were publishing books that the ITC uses now. Uh, we were publishing it there. I was um, there and um, my path began to cross with all types of appointments in both sacred and secular space. I don't want to even, I don't want to separate them contextually right now, but I, but I do want to say that, that they all had to do with blackness. At that same time, um, the concept of the Willie Lynch letter was revealed to me. Um, and I remember um, printing out on legal paper the Willie Lynch letter and breaking it at that time into 247 verses and nine chapters. This was just right around high school. And I would put the responses to those those ideas in red. And then when I took that to Bible school, of course it was a disruption because you gotta put the scripture in there somewhere. So what does this have to do with the Bible, son? Well, at that time, I didn't know that my blackness was the Bible. But at that time I thought that, you know, I had been, you know, I had been up around that evangelical fire and I had been warming by the by the doctrines of the of whiteness and white causality and authenticity. But the Lord was down there disrupting everything. Every time I would try to ascend to the heights of whiteness, God would say, you you come down from there <laughs> with them devils. <laughs> and it wasn't the people. It is the doctrine of white supremacy. It is the the context of oppression that keeps the world assimilating to whiteness as deity and as theology. And uh, God was ripping me from that in any way God could get me from uh, that context to prophesy, mind you, so that the people would find a divine appointment. My name is not for me. My name really is, is for the people. I really did not understand at that time that it really wasn't about the the rugged individual concept of me, but it was about the communal me that I would connect with, and uh, and I would meet people like Bishop Alfred Melvin Key in Lynchburg, Virginia, and he taught me the concept of sonship. Now are we the sons of God? You know, and when you look at when I'm looking at Marcus, I'm looking at a son of God. I'm looking at a. I'm looking at the reproduction. I'm looking at God. I'm not. I'm not talking to some lesser version. I'm talking to the body. I'm talking to the present Christ. And then with Marcus, you know, having the skin color that he does, it must be the black Christ. I must be talking to the black Christ there. So when 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 Key taught me how to look for God in a man and look for God as a man. And a woman, mind you, and that there is no, you know, uh, Paul says in no male, no female, Jew or Greek and all of that. He talks about all that, you know, um, stuff that he does. Um, I'm going to say, <laughs> and source criticism, you learned that, but I'm going to say that when I, when I learn to not see God from the lens of humanity and start seeing humanity from the lens of God, 
I started seeing humanity as a reflection of God, and I was able to 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 to, to measure that by love, right? A a a a radical kind of love that does not presuppose identity based on Eurocentric context, and and that gives me a prof a prophecy that says. First of all, come into my space. I expect, I, I, I want you to expect to be accepted by me as you are. And before we, before we go to changing anything, we're going to, to just appreciate the reflection of, 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 of who you are in a, in a very sacred manner. And I know that sounds very liberal and, you know, I know that Jerry Falwell might roll over in his grave, you know, hearing those things, but I hope. He rose 10 times after he's his broadcast today. <laughs> oh, I'm calling names. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm calling no names. But, but, but my name is my nature. When you study Hebrew, you study, you understand that a name is not given for the sake of personalized, contextualized. A name is given as assignment of being to a people. This is the part you will play in your community, especially as Africans, medicine man, the doctor, whoever you are in your community, as a name, your name is a prophecy. Every time somebody calls your name, they're prophesying something. And, um, and you're prophesying to yourself. So you got to watch what you answer to because uh, that contextually is prophetic. I, I, I haven't done any... Uh, prophetic conferences or lines and whatever, but I've been prophesying. Y'all better know it. You know, my idea of prophecy has more to do with being than it does with um, these intersections of uh, experience or gimmicks or that kind of thing. Um, it's deeper than that. Yeah, I think what you just shared is so important. Um, when you said that your name is your nature, it actually um brought back some memories i've had i, I recall uh working for an employer and the ceo at the time uh really just helping me understand how important my name was and this was a secular employer um because so often of course we we, we get caught up in titles mr mrs mrs doctor um this doctor that and all of that is good Mm -hmm. um, and of course, we acknowledge it. But there was a moment where, um, you know, I, I think my, my CEO picked up from me that I was regarding um, someone's doctorate um, higher than someone's name. There was something happening and he corrected me in the moment and said, yeah, he, he, he literally corrected me in the moment and said, hey, you know, Marcus, your name is more important even than that degree you earn. Um, and, and I had to, to fully understand what he was trying to, to convey to me at the time. And so we talked about that. I found that even in my dialogue with kids, because I work in education, I'm reminding them of who they are just by having them kind of dig into uh, what name, what their names mean. I'm asking kids sometimes to reflect on, you know, the, what, what, what does your name mean? Have you ever looked that up? Have, did you, have you ever asked why you were named what you were named? 
Um, and it's funny how sometimes kids will come back and have a smile on their face or think more um, deeply about what their name really does mean to them as they explore the history behind why their parents actually named them something or what the meaning of their name actually is. Um, but that, I think that's so powerful. Um, so I'm, I'm hearing you say that name, your name is, is really also very much a part of your identity. And I think even in your personal story, you've been able to really associate your journey with your beginnings, in particular, why you were named Jeremiah and how that has helped to kind of shape uh, your path, your identity as a, as a, as a male, as a preacher, um, as, a, as a prophet, as a person who's pursued theological education, but even also in terms of your impact in the world. Uh, much of your journey has been very much aligned to kind of this uh, deep conceptual understanding of, of what lies behind uh, the history of why you were called Jeremiah. Yes, um, the, the, the other context is of course the scriptural reflection of the prophet who uh, has to stand up against empire, um, who, is, who is the grandson of Hilkiah. He is born into a lineage of priesthood um, he is born into a lineage of priesthood, but he must he must be a, he must carry the sacredness of priesthood without the comforts of um, the acceptedness or normalization of of his anointing. So he must prophesy. Um, the reason the reason for the prophetic is absolutely denial that there there is. There is something, uh, there is some, there is some divine reality that is being denied, and a prophet must be um, in repetition. God's mind, and I'm not, I'm not going to say God's voice. I'm going to say God's mind. The prophet has to be God's mind in repetition to the denial, and so there is a let there be in every prophet. Uh, why is there let there be? Because there is something that is not allowing the being. And when you, when you, when you, when you challenge the, the, the work and the worth and the word of the, of the antithetical and, it, and it's in league with empire, your life, your life carries a bit of uh, sorrow and uh, a bit of um, depression because there is oppression afoot. Your burden is the burden of the people. You know that God is not down with people oppressing people. And so uh, Jeremiah in the scripture has to constantly rebuke the people for their loss of their identity or their loss of their commitment to their own identity. And then Jeremiah also in that scripture has to rebuke the administration and the kings and the people that are in league with empire. Um, and, uh, 
and so and such is a inference of my life. You know, this era, I was born into the time of Trump. I was born into the time of um, Reagan. I was born in, you know, in, in, into the time of the, you know, the fake war on drugs. Uh, I was born into the deception of the, uh, the uh, emasculation of the male. And uh, uh, I was born into the time of, of um, the stigmatizing of uh, our community, our, our community and its diversity. I was born into the time where uh, people were paid large sums of money to socialize the population into toxic behaviors and toxic traits to maintain psychological control by corporations. And so as a prophet being, being clear about the industrial uh, benefit of capitalist prophecy and capitalist church and people who have a theo-capitalism, they, they worship the God that would um, make whiteness or maintain white, white riches in, with black oppression uh, or, or world oppression. I won't say black as a personal context to skin color. I will say black as a social construct because really there are more people that are black than the people with the skin that are black in the world now. And that's why you see the world identifying with blackness, Black Lives Matter, and all these kinds of things. Because what the world is saying is that your whiteness and your your bleaching and your you know your 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 form of the world that you wanted is no longer acceptable. Our many and great diversity of colors that if you put them all on the paper create the same blackness where the stars rest is no longer evil or illegal to us. That is prophecy to me. To to give a let there be uh, to the to the stars that shine alongside the sun, and that there's a greater universe than than just the one patriarchal context that we have learned from whiteness. Um, am I being hard on whiteness today? Um, no, I I think um, I think what has to happen is for us to truly understand what you mean by whiteness, right? I think sometimes people associate the term whiteness to individuals. Um, and, and that's not necessarily what you mean. I understand whiteness to be more of a worldview. Um, and so I do think um, there, there needs to be an interrogation into what that truly means and, and how that plays out. And in particular within this context, um, how it plays out in the church and how sometimes in many ways, even the black church is, in, is complicit um in maintaining oh yeah um whiteness across the board so i i think it's in i think that's an opportunity for us to to continue to grow our understanding of, of what that really means and how we and, and what role we play in dismantling it challenging it tearing it down but also exposing it which requires a lot of effort time and, and understanding um i want to kind of dig into you mentioned you talked about you mentioned um capitalist prophecy yeah and i also want to associate come back to the 
the question of what, how would you define what it means to be prophetic? And let me, let me, uh, let me unpack the capitalist prophecy. Um, in order for there to be a capitalist prophecy, there must also be a liberation prophecy. Now, if I look at the same Bible that my, uh, my, my counterparts in whiteness look at John MacArthur and a number of them, they would legitimize uh, slavery as a part of God's plan for black people. They would say that God uh, allowed black people to be enslaved because it was a part of God's will. It was supposed to be a part of the timeline. This is what God wanted. I deny in a very vehement way the idea that God ever wanted any of my ancestors enslaved for any reason at any time. Capitalist prophecy will create uh, what I want to call leverage out of your life to serve itself. It will leverage lives. And when, when I say leverage lives, lives are meant to be lived, not leveraged. See? And, uh, and so what I'm taking from you is I'm taking 40 hours of your week. I'm taking you from your family. I'm taking you from your authenticity, from, from you. I'm taking you from your creativity. I'm taking you from what you can do for, for yourself. And I'm saying, bring your being over here and I'm going to uh, not even compensate your being for what you're worth. I'm going to compensate your being for what I can make off of you and for what you can be to me. And that is capitalist prophecy. Now, liberation prophecy is don't give me reconciliation with Jesus and reconciliation with all people until you give me reparations that go with that reconciliation. I want back what you took from me in your leveraging of my life. Whatever it took to build the bricks that your courts stand on, whatever it took to build the bricks that your, your corporations sit in comfortably and the air conditions and the streets that you ride on that we paved with our lives and the railroad tracks that we've laid and the benefits of mass incarceration and all the things that you have reaped from leveraging us for the future of this country over the last 400 years. For me, the prophetic is, let there be a liberation of these people and then also let there be a reparation and repar reparatory uh, disciplines, philosophies, and systemization that heal these people. Now notice I say disciplines, philosophies and systems. Prophets are called more to a uh, dictaphone than they are to a microphone. Prophets are called to analyze and interrogate the answers that have been given. Prophets are often not always called to bring answers. Prophets are called to bring questions to given answers, right? And if we are going to be prophetic, we must question the lies that we have been given, the retelling of our history. Let us look even to the authenticity of the Bible itself. Let us look to the burning of the great library of Alexandria. Let us look to the domination of, uh, of, of Alexander and the, and the taking of languages and and let's look to Constantine and his work. Let us look to 
uh, not just the Jewish people and not just the Hebrew people, but let us look to what they were called before then, the Ephraim people and the Akan language and the languages that these languages came out of. Let us look to how our Africanness has been leveraged to build the entire world with our goods, but without, without our label. It is, in essence, we want you to build our factories. We want your secret ingredients, but we don't want your mama's face on it. We don't want your auntie's face on it. We won't want your daddy's face on it. We, we'll take you if you're pacified. We'll take you if you, and, and I'm not going to come against George Washington Carver, but I'm going to say we'll take you if you'll stand up against W.E.B. Du Bois. We don't want you to be humanized. We want you to be laborized, see, so that we can continue to leverage. We want you at our feet begging for a place at our table, denying your ability to build your own. We want you there. And so a prophet, a prophet, and I'm not going to say a black prophet. I'm just going to say a prophet because I don't believe that you can be prophetic in whiteness. Uh-oh. Here we go. I know I'm going on a ride now. You can't be prophetic in whiteness. In whiteness, you can only mimic and dominate the prophetic. You can only leverage what you've seen as prophetic. That's why you see the churches now. Y'all ain't going to get with me on this. I know y'all going to be mad at me. The listeners are going to be mad at me after I say this. We're going to need a part one and part two because they're going to turn me off after I say this. But now you got white folk on bullhorns in the street talking about we're mad because we are losing our dominant hold. And then you got them going back to churches and doing the holy dance like they was born somewhere over in the Congo. And the devil. My God. Come here, Jakes. That devil is. Yeah. Alive. And you have people who have, they love our songs and they love our dance and they love our club colors, our hairstyles, our clothes. Why? Because they pump up their lips. They dress like us. They come into church like us. They sing like us. You know, they was in that hymn book. They couldn't say nothing. Come on, not like that. Come on, come on now. Now tell the truth now. Them white people won't do a church like they're doing now. Other than the ones that were in the Appalachian. Uh, the, the Appalachian white people were different white people than the people that were in the valley and in the city and industrialized. The people who were in the Appalachians had spirituals. Why? Because they suffered like black people because they were not accepted among their own people. So they weren't white. They were black, black Appalachians that had light skin. That's what I call them. The Blue Ridge people. I love them. They sing blue crabs and cry about, you know, when Millie left him in the house and he was like, well, that's good. Get a little bit of what I've been having. You didn't get beat, but you got a little something. <laughs> you got a little pain. I told somebody yesterday, here's, here's the great thing about being an adult. This is the difference between being an adult and being a child. An adult has the ability to choose their pain. A child doesn't. That's the same thing about difference between white and black. Whites can choose their pain. Blacks can't. Our pain is chosen, chosen for us excuse me, before we ever get an opportunity to choose what we're going to go through. It's set up for us. It is called autoethnography. It is that our, eth our, eth our, our ethnography, before we ever got here, has determined what we're going to encounter. Now, we're going to attempt to have faith. 
We're going to attempt to prophesy. We're going to praise God. We're going to try to find a way out. We're going to attempt to create. But we are going to be automated into a system of, of a time where the only way to be prophetic is to resist a, a whiteness that has taken everything and made it in its image. Bishop, that, that's a that's a powerful point. So let me let me I want you to uh, break that down a little bit more. Right. So okay. when when folk hear what you just said about not being you don't believe you can truly be prophetic in whiteness. Right. Yeah. What does that look like? What does what what does that look like currently? in the popular church, in the popular evangelical and prophetic church? How, how might someone who believes they are being prophetic, truly acting as a representative of God, you know, in, in, in the language we use as a prophet, um, and how, what does it look like to actually mimic what whiteness uh, might be in in church today as a, as a prophetic voice. Okay, so if you're if if you're in the white space and you're be, believing that you're being prophetic and you're doing things like, um, you're doing things like now you've come into a place where you've you've accepted the Azusa Street revival without the Azusa Street revivalist. Y'all not gonna get with me right there. We 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 don't want you see more. Okay. We don't want you because you're, you're, there's too many Africanisms in your manifestation of the Holy Ghost. You know, your shout. Let's go, let's go with the shouting in church, right? The praise break. We in the age of the, my God today, I need to get one right there. I need to, I feel it right now coming up on me right now. But I praise for a different reason. My praise is tied to the ring shout. And the ring shout is where our elders and our ancestors would get together and link arms or link shoulder to shoulder and they would shout in counterclockwise resistance to the clock and the, they would shout in the direction to go to turn the clock backwards because they wanted to go back to a time where they were not enslaved. So the ring shout and the shouting to the left, you see the feet going. When they're shouting that way, we don't know it in this time, but in their time, they were shouting to ask God or to say to God to turn back the time and to resist oppression. It was a shout of protest. It was a shout of resistance, right? Right now, white folks shouting because they heard the Hammond organ because they just brought one last week. And, they, and Johnny went to go get lessons from from off of uh, Mike B. Real's video lessons. And now he's at, at in his church and he can play Mike B. Real's chords and they can shout the shout just as good as Charles Butler and Trinity, but they don't understand that their ancestors were not born to uh, 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 the, the plantation that we now call Washington, D.C., where our bodies were for sale on the same location the same physical location where the National African American History Museum rests. They don't understand that, that, that the reason why we do what we do has a lot to do with our resistance to white dominance, to our inability. When you go to Vegas, when you come to, to downtown Atlanta and you see these infrastructures and you see these corporations that have built these infrastructures that have the capital 
to build things that we dream to build, that even as men, we assimilate to whiteness to try to get in the direction of building. We don't realize that there has been such a compiling or 400 years of compiling or more of compiling of their wealth. Let's talk about Haiti. Let's talk about how Haiti had to pay France up until possibly 80 to 100 years ago to keep France to come back from coming back to kill the Haitians because the Haitians resisted their oppression and the agreement was a silent agreement so that they would not have to uh, uh, have war with them they were to pay them. That's why Haiti is a poor country. Haiti is not a poor country because God cursed it. Haiti is a poor country because anything that has come up in Haiti has had to be paid out to the French. And that's why you see the French giving treasures back. They gave last week, they gave 26 treasures back to Benin because they went and conquered and stole 26 uh, treasures of artifacts from uh, the, the Benin people. And now the president of Benin is receiving an apology from, from France. But that France ain't done giving back. They need to clean it out. Clean out them, 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 them places that they've built. Because here, here, here we are in 2021. And this is how you know something is wrong. We're still fighting for the right to continue the right to vote. Now that's got to be the devil. How inhumane do I have to be to not be automated in this system to have the right to vote? And you're going to take my shout? Well, while you're taking it, just understand that if Shango sh show up, <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't they going to get me on that one. <laughs> if, if, if some African, if some Africanization shows up in your spirit and you say, I'm mimicking black people. I'm mimicking black people. I am mimicking black people. I'm mimicking their hairstyles. I'm, I, wanna, I want their locks. I'm, I'm further stealing from them everything that they created to exist and be human and have peace in this oppressive country. I'm taking even more from them. I took their land. I took their ancestors. I took their potential for wealth. I took everything. Now I'm going to take their identity until I get rid of them completely. What does the prophet do? The prophet said, hail to the no, y'all ain't hear Bishop Bowinkle. To the no, 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 it's a prophetic song. Hail to the no, to the no, they say he's cussing. I'm not cussing, I'm cursing, first of all. Let's get that clear. <laughs> My job is to curse the oppressor's work and the worst of the oppressor because see, they stigmatize my blackness as a man. They stigmatize my manhood. They stigmatize the womanhood of my sisters. They stigmatize our children before they ever get a chance to grow up. They stigmatize all of that and they curse it. They curse it, right? But because, because of that, it's my job to say, hell no. I don't want it. I don't want you. I don't want to fit in with you. And I want you to stop taking my stuff. Now, that, now that's mean, ain't it? It, I ain't got nothing against Rod Parsley. As long as he connect himself to his Appalachian people. I don't have nothing against those people. 
And I know, I know this is why people, this is why people say he's over the top. Yeah, right. I am. I have to be right now. I got to be. Yeah, I, I think it, it goes back to uh, a discussion we once had about prophetic rage. We won't get into that today, but Ooh. I can, I can, I can feel it. I can feel it. So <laughs> you, you said earlier, you mentioned something about the prophet interrogating the the answers, the lies, yes. the stories, the histories that we have inherited and have been given, that that is what the prophet's job is. I would love for you to kind of tie that into how important, first of all, you can't do that if you don't know your history. That's it. That's yeah. It. So if, if we don't know what brought us to, because none of this is new and, and much of it is, um, you know, it is a reoccurrence of something that has happened in the past, but it, it, it's just in different form. And, and so unless we understand that, we might not be able to truly be able to peer into the future and anticipate what's to come as we think about prophetically um, what the future holds for us. And so I would love for you to kind of tie that into in particular, the importance of having a theological education um, oh, yes. because um, I think in, 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 in many regards, like much of the reason why we, we sometimes still repeat history is because we've not really learned from history. We've not really studied our history. So kind of talk a little bit about that. Many of our uh, young people in this generation, young preachers, they are following after their, uh, their bishops and their reverends and their doctors and their mentors so that they can get their rings and their robes and their regalia and they're missing their libraries. They need to be going after their libraries. They need to be going after not the, not the performance of the man, not the performance of the woman, not, not, the, not the things that, that make them sensational in the public. They need to be going after the things that make them substantive in the private, in the personal, the things that they read that they haven't shared with the world that's too heavy they always say that if you want to hide something from black people guess what y'all know y'all know the saying i don't want to say it put it in the book because the answer will be right beside them and they won't and they will not engage the answer well we have to do the hard work and the legwork of refusing and refuting the answers that we've been given, the books that have been written that are, that are full of lies, in fact. Now, if you listen to John MacArthur long enough, and if you got a MacArthur study Bible in your, uh, in your library and you're preaching out of it, I have a problem with you. My problem is not with the fact that you are utilizing uh, the, the Hebrew text or the Greek text or the Aramaic, Aramaic, my problem with you is you're taking a white man's interpretation of the codex or the languages that were passed down and you won't learn the languages for yourself and you won't go and study the, 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 the what they call dead languages or you won't go and study the history for yourself. You will take John MacArthur's a uh, 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 poisoned dinner 
and serve it to your people. And, and when you do that as a preacher, what you're doing is you're setting your people back. You're setting your people back. The importance of theological education is critical, but in, in particular, liberation-oriented theological education, black theological education. If you have not heard of James Cone, you're in trouble. If, if you have not heard of Gilmore, and if you don't really study West, I'm not talking about sound bites of Cornell West. I'm not talking about sound bites of, of, of these people that, 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 you know, they give us on TV for a minute when it's, when it's comfortable. I'm talking about studying their texts and their interrogation and their questioning of the answers. If you're not studying Ed, Eddie Glaude's context of, 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 of Jimmy Baldwin and, and how Glaude gives us a prophetic and yet even a critique of Baldwin in his text. If you're not studying those narratives, if you're not studying, you know, the Gardner C. Taylor's, not for his eloquence in speech, but for his interrogation of his culture. If you're not doing that, you're in trouble. You're in trouble as a preacher. You're in trouble as a leader, community leader. You're in trouble as a parent. You're in trouble as a husband. You're in trouble as a wife. You're in trouble as a son. You're in trouble as a daughter. Because what you're going to do is you are going to build a community that is, that is antithetical to itself, and it will run itself in the ground on self-hatred. It will steal from itself. It will kill itself. It will hate itself. It will abuse itself. Why? Because that's what we learn from whiteness to do. We learn from the whiteness to stigmatize and to debate our worth instead of celebrate our worth and accept our worth and integrate the value of our creativity together and build something greater than what we have. But see, in, theolog in black theological education, here's, here's what I'm finding. I'm finding that we don't have enough media in black theological education. We don't have enough technology. We have, we have the academy, we have the academicians, we have the writers, we have the authors, we have the brilliant minds, but they don't have TV programs. They, 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 they're not invited to TBN. They're not invited to the Word Network because what they have to say is infuriating. They are, they are, they are censored on Instagram. They are censored on Facebook. They are censored in certain elements. Why? Because people don't want to raise that touchy subject of what has been done to black people. And black theologians have to understand that it is trauma to be a black theologian. It is trauma to be a black preacher. It is trauma to be someone who imagines heaven or someone who imagines haven when haven and heaven for black people is hell for white people. If you're free, who's going to work their plantation? Who's going to work their jobs? Who's going to do the things that they don't want to do and they don't want to pay nobody to do? Because, and they've been used to doing it. Or they want to pay people very little to do because they don't care. Why are we the richest country in the world and yet have no universal health care? It is because we don't have any profits who say these people's lives are valuable enough to at least keep them alive. No, we get a competition about who can charge the most for insulin, who can charge the most for uh, uh, medicines that people should have and antibiotics. If somebody gets sick, you don't listen. When somebody gets sick, they're not going to the doctor. They're going to the pocketbook to see if, what kind of doctor they can afford. That's the devil. That's the real devil. And if, and if you don't, and if you don't have 
people I don't you you may not ever hear me in a pulpit again but that's all right because I'm gonna be on that tail you understand because where where my voice is needed and where the real prophets are needed are in places where folk don't want to hear us yeah, I don't, you know, I'm good with it. I, you know, I'll preach you right into a praise break up under the table, down the mountain and up again. We're going we gonna to get there. You give me a Hammond organ and whatever, I don't need even a Hammond organ. You give me a little a Yamaha keyboard, somebody, and we're going somewhere. I'll get you there. I can do that. I know how to do that. But the other thing I know how to do is get on that Capitol Hill and tell them jokers that you are evil and your works are evil because it, until you, until I have the right to vote, <laughs> automated and we don't have to you know choose every 35 years whatever years however many years you know the voting rights act expired what in the world is that what are y'all talking about your oh, my right to vote is expired oh it expires like a license what is that i mean what is that my marriage license don't expire why is that <laughs> my taxes don't expire we're gonna keep the right you had to what 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 so why in the world my voting rights Expired. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. We don't want you to have a say so in how you're governed, but we but we'll give you a say so in, in how you spend your money. You keep spending it all, spin it up, run up, you run it up, run the bill up. Be indebted to us forever. Yeah. And not be free. Okay, so that is where the interrogation must begin. That's where the prophetic lies for me, right? Black theological education. You, 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 you cannot, we can't go forward until, until these, uh, I said it early and I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold this book up. If you're in a black church and y'all haven't had this book in your church and y'all haven't discussed it in, in Bible study, if you don't know who this is, you need to change churches and tell your pastor to call me while you, about why you left. And I'll hit through my course. My course. I'm gonna charge him. He going. He gonna have to pay for my course now. Yeah, I'm gonna charge him. He gonna pay me. But he'll come. Yeah, they come back after you. After you, I teach you how to teach the book. <laughs> now that's terrible. Hey, it's, uh, it's tight, but it's right. <laughs> absolutely. Well, you you mentioned a few times. I've heard you you say the black church. Yes. Right. Oh, here we go. That's right. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested in your definition of what is the black church. I mean, I, I understand it to not be monolithic. You, you might have a different take on it, but I would love to, to hear your take on that. And then, too, why the black church is so critical, particularly in, in our modern world, given the state of affairs happening today. Can I can I play a can I share my screen and play um play a clip for you? Absolutely. Okay. I'm gonna play this clip and share share the sound here. Okay. There we go. And uh here we go. When people relegate the move or the sound of the Holy Ghost to a black church and then try to trace it to some African ancestry or some voodoo spirit 
Oh, Lord. I've seen some documentaries on the black church. And I tell the trail, try to tell folks there never was a black church. There was only the church of the Lord Jesus. That's the reason when I come to Family Community Church in Independence, Kentucky, I feel at home. When people relegate the move or the sound of the whole. Just before the choir starts singing uh, the next song, the preacher has preached. Um, the preacher has preached his message. It's been broadcast all over the world. And um, and uh, I, I just want to say that I have a right now to interrogate what the man has said. Okay, let, let me let me let me let me first start with this black man that you see preaching is a product of the black church. He's a product directly of Bishop Charles Harrison Mason and Charles Harrison Mason was the only, not, listen to what I'm going to say, the only black preacher in America that was so popular that white people were coming to get ordained by him, right? And the reason why they stopped getting ordained, they tried to kill him, first of all, they jailed him and they tried to kill him. But the reason why they stopped is because they could not beholden, be beholden to a black man for their ministerial license and their ministerial training as white people. So they break off from him, take his doctrine and stop the assemblies of God. And this black man here who's preaching in what he calls family community church. I don't know which family and which community he's talking to because he ain't talking to mine. And he's not being real with himself has built his entire career, his music career, how he feeds his family, how he built his mega church and his seats in his auditorium. He's built it off of the backs of black people that work hard and whose children have been locked up, mass incarceration, enslaved and all kinds of things to this system and this time. And he's given us this BS hoopology. And, and if they make it sound good, it's supposed to not be a lie. But a lie is a lie, whether you hoop it or not, right? And so this man that says he doesn't want Henry Louis Gates, what he's alluding to is Louis Gates' documentary, which was a mild version of the black church, right? He, he's alluding to other things, African ancestry and the root and all of these things. He's alluding to the idea that there is no legitimate space for blackness and the black church. Well, I'm sorry, Marvin Wines, who I have loved all of my life, loved your music. But you going over here, coon dancing for these people so that you can fit in and be accepted by whiteness in a church, mind you, that stood up for black lives during the struggle against or do, uh, that, ha that has I don't know even why he did it. He did it so he could fit in with the pastor. But let me tell you something. 
You can't get up from the table, and you hear me say this often, you can't get up from the, the dinner table and not pay the bill, baby. There is still a bill due to black people in this country. And blackness is, yes, a social construct. Blackness, yes, is a social construct. But you built it. Now you need to pay the worth and the value to blackness that you built. And there is a black church. And there is a white church. All right? And I'm not going to say that any other church are, are insignificant, but the tension and the struggle in this country is between the black church and the white church. Because I don't know how white people can go in into, into walls and have a blonde-haired, blue-eyed veneration of a man that was born in North Africa under a hot sun, right, with, with African heritage and Afro-European and Afro-Asiatic connections and give us blonde hair and blue eye, anything, a disciple or any of it. I don't want none of what you got. You can burn all of those pictures. You can take Cesare Borgia down from the white churches and you can take Cesare Borgia down from the black churches. And if you don't know who that is, you need to sign up for my course. Because most of y'all think Jesus looked like I'm going to leave that right there. But let me, let me also do this. Can, I, can we just hit him with both things? Marvin Wines is wrong. Send him an email and letter and tell him I told him he was wrong. I might get famous. It might go viral. Just tell him that I that tell him Heckley said Marvin Wines is wrong. I'd love to get him on the show to debate him. And I want to do it in the presence of him and his contemporaries and the people that agree with him. And I want the other, I want the other people, I want, I want some theologians and scholars. I want the dean of the C.H. Mason Seminary who contextualizes liberation theology to get in this conversation. Let's get everybody at the table. Because if you're telling me that there's no black church, that means the bill been paid and everything's all right. I'll go away, pay me. I go on back to where you say I came from. I might go somewhere else. <laughs> Take the money and go somewhere else. <laughs> Because <laughs> that would be my right if I get the money. But until you pay me, there is a black church. There will be a black church, and we're going to get on your nerves. Period. Point blank. When it's election time, we're going to get on your nerves. When it's time to come in the media, we're going to get on your nerves. When it's time to buy real estate, we're going to get on your nerves. Why? Because we're showing up. It's just time to show up. This, this preacher is preaching a lie to a majority white audience to be accepted in a place where he can continue to co get, collect a check and be accepted. I never believed. How you never, how you never believed? How you never believed your daddy would rape? Boy, I think that Marvin Wine's daddy might slap him for that one. See, when folk get on TBN, now I'm calling out TBN, when folk get on TBN and they feel accepted in that audience, right? Or they get on these, these major networks and they feel accepted in those audiences, they start changing their doctrine. Well, let's not, let's not protest so much. Or let's not stand up against it. You know, let's, let's go and, and, and just make peace with everybody. Right? But there's, every, time is, every time is not a time of peace. There is a time of war and a time of peace. Right? There is a time to resist. And then there's a time to accept. That's Solomon. Let's let's get let's get the text right. You can't 
You can't give me part of it. Because if there's no black church, then Paul didn't need to write to Ephesus. John didn't need to resist. You know, they, they, if we're not contextualizing identities in church, then, you know, then, uh, then, 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 then don't give me a Jesus who tells his disciples in their ordination service. Jesus says, go not to the world. Don't go everywhere. Don't go to everybody. He said, go to the lost sheep of North Africa, Israel. The place where you come from, your being. Go to save your own people first before you go to save anybody else. That's essentially what Jesus ordains his apostles. And so their apostle, their, their apostolic assignment is to their culture first. And I'm trying to figure out how are you the prophet and the apostle and the bishop and you're nothing to your people and you sell out your people and you're the bishop elect. Well, who elected and when is the vote? Anyway, I'm, anyway, <laughs> I'm going to leave him alone. I'm coming up. I'm coming. I'm going to back down. I'm going to back down. Yeah. Well, you know, I, you, you mentioned how can you not protest or resist? I, I, I don't know if you can protest or resist when you were not formed or shaped to do so. Um, when you've been raised informed by whiteness it's hard to then try and figure out how to oppose what you've been eating for most of your life and so for you you're colorblind right you you there there is no distinct no, no distinction in color there is no need to protest because we're all here just enjoying each other right we're, we're enjoying the camaraderie we want peace and who wants to have confrontation i want to avoid you know any kind of dissension or uh protest it, it, you know that struggle that that wrestling that tension is something we tend to avoid when we've not been shaped um by by such a, like yourself by by voices that have helped us to truly understand our roots and why whiteness is such, um, such an antagonist player in mm -hmm. what God really wants to have happen in, in the world. And so, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think it's difficult to do that kind of work when that's not been how you've been trained and when that's not your worldview. Uh, uh, what, what Marvin Winans fails to do is study history. Uh, I want to bring up the letter of King Leopold. Let me let me see if I can. Can I share that on the screen? I'm going to share that on the screen so that they won't say that it came from me. Uh, Leopold's letter. Uh, King Leopold. Letter from King Leopold II of Belgium to the colonial missionaries in 1883. Two years after the uh, Turner Seminary was founded, I believe, or a year, be, you know, in... in, in uh, uh, at Morris Brown College and that kind of thing. Here, 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 uh, here, uh, Leopold says, and dear compatriots, the task is given, uh, the task that is given to fulfill is very delicate and it requires much tact. You will go certainly to evangelize, but your evangelization must inspire above all Belgium interest. Belgium's interest. I didn't say heaven's interest or God's interest. Belgium's interest. Your principal objective in our mission in the Congo is never to teach the niggers to know God. 
This they know already. They speak and submit to a Mangu, one in Zambi, one in Zukuma, and what else I don't know. They, they know that to kill, to sleep with someone else's wife, to lie and to insult is bad. Have courage to admit it. You are not going to teach them what they already know. Your essential role is to facilitate the task of administrators and industrials. Notice there. Which means that you will go to interpret the gospel in a way it, it, uh, in the way it will be the best to protect your interest in that, uh, in that part of the world. For these things, you have to keep watch on disinteresting our savages from the richness that is plenty, uh, quote, in their underground to avoid that they get, they, they get interested in it and make you murderous. Let me, let me pause there. Uh, he's saying they, you need to keep them distracted so that they don't look at the land that we're going to take from them. Right. And the, and what's beneath the land. And then he says the competition and the dream one day to overthrow you. He says he's basically warning them if they're going over there to preach, uh, they're going over there to take the Bible and to use it in tactical uh, mental warfare to make sure that these people are distracted from the value of that which they have. And I could go through this whole letter, but this is the letter again of Leopold II to the colonial missionaries, right? And so I'm going to stop there because I don't need to read any more. You see that in that particular letter that Leopold tells the Christian missionaries to take your whiteness, distract them from their blackness and all that they value. And then Leopold goes on to kill more people than Hitler in the Congo. Leopold goes on to do dastardly deeds in the world and accumulate treasures that are not his. And now we see why Belgium is rich. We see why these white spaces are rich. They're rich because they have no ethics and no consideration for humanity. And they're willing to do and say anything to get what they want. And this is what Marvin Winans is preaching. Marvin Winans is preaching the gospel of Leopold. He doesn't know he's a Leopoldian uh, gospel tactician. He doesn't understand that he's got to preach a kingdom of God without color in order to keep colored people destitute and oppressed. And he doesn't understand that he is preaching good news to white people and, and it's become bad news to black people. Help me now. Wow. Bishop, I also want to read something um, and just get your, your quick thoughts and reflections on it. So this, mm -hmm. I'm reading out of a, a book by Ta-Nehisi Coates. He's, he's a modern author. Um, he wrote Between the World and Me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm just going to read a quick blurb here. It says, um, Americans deify democracy in a way that allows for a dim awareness that they have from time to time stood in defiance of their God. But democracy is a forgiving God in America's heresies, torture, theft, enslavement, 
are so common among individuals and nations that none can declare themselves immune. In fact, Americans in a real sense have never betrayed their God. When Abraham Lincoln declared in 1863, let me take my glasses off, that the Battle of Gettysburg must ensure that government of the people by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. He was not merely being aspirational. At the onset of the Civil War, the United States of America had one of the highest rates of suffrage in the world. The question is not whether Lincoln truly meant government of the people, but what our country has throughout its history taken the political term people to actually mean. I'm gonna skip here where he says, Americans believe in the reality of race as a defined indebutable feature of the natural world. Racism, the need to ascribe bone deep features to people and then humiliate, reduce and destroy them inevitably follows from this inalterable condition. In this way, race, racism is rendered as the innocent daughter of mother nature. And one is left to deplore the middle passage or the trail of tears the way one deplores an earthquake, a tornado, or any other phenomenon that can be cast as beyond the handiwork of men. But race is the child of racism, not the father. And the process of naming the people has never been a matter of genealogy and physiognomy so much as one of hierarchy. It is a social construct. We must accept this that class and race and all of the bias that exists in humanity are products of somebody's desire to leverage the value of bodies, to leverage the spectacle of, of color, to leverage the spectacle of gender, to leverage the spectacle of activity or action. If I can take who you are and I can somehow label it, and I can make a product out of it or a production out of it. And if I can get value from that production, I'm going to feed you that narrative. I'm going to feed you that identity. I see what Marvin Winans is trying to do. He's trying to say, there is no color in God. But God would say, I'm not blind. I'm not colorblind. I know what I was painting when I painted it. I know what I was doing. But I know also that you can't take one of you and say that the one of you is better than the other of you because the other is different from you. That difference is not our downfall. That difference is our beauty. Difference is our power. Difference is our strength. We reflect the distinctions of God and we find that, that it is all divine. But here's the problem. One group of us in this last 400 years have been done in a way that no group of us have been done. And when you see that particular thing that has gone on, then you need to stand up against oppression and injustice in every human way possible and defend that group. The other brothers and sisters need to come to the defense of the, of the oppressed brother or sister. They don't need to kick them while they're down. That's all we're saying. We're saying that we're not in a space, especially not theologically. I don't know how you can even think.
think of God or higher being or deity or the universe or whatever you want to say or whatever you want to call it, whether it's a Pentecostal God or Baptist God or Apostolic God or the Southern Baptist or the Northern Baptist or the Wailing Baptist or the whatever you want to call it. I don't care what you say. As long as those Africans that joined your AME and that joined, joined your Methodism and joined your Baptist and joined your Catholicism and joined your Lutheranism and joined your Presbyterianism, as long as those Africans get to stay legitimate as Africans, that they don't have to become white to be a part of your reformations and your theological persuasions, and that they can include their, their medicine men and their chiefs and their people that, that they respect in their community as a part of their governing authorities in these reformations. Don't tell me that you've, you've become a multicultural church because you got two or three black people that come and sit in your audience. Until there are black people that are on your staff that are deciding what to do with the money and what to do with your image and what to do with your message, you ain't multicultural yet. You got a label and no evidence. And you invite Marvin Winans to keep you in oppression and to keep you as an oppressor. And you pay him good to preach that devilment to you. But here's the prophet talking to you. Your days are numbered. Now here come the future. Over the course of the next hundred years, you're going to see the preachers who are going to change the idea and the identity of preachers and people and people all, of all faiths and, and all movements, you're going to see them over the next hundred years effect change that will be unfolding for the next 400 years. And this world will not be what it is today. We are not prophets until we affect the years that we have suffered. So we need to affect, we have to have prophecy, not for tomorrow, not that I see a check coming in the mail. It's coming in the mail, but I need it not to come in the mail one time. I need the royalties to come in the mail for three and four and five and six lifetimes. I need to know that my, my fourth great grandchild will come forth and say, I, hit, I watched the video of my grandfather and you know he stood up for my identity. And that's why I'm here today, owning whatever I'm owning and doing whatever I'm doing because he decided to take his time and make, and make, a, make a change in the direction that we were going because we were going backwards. But he prophesied that we need to go the other way. We don't need to assimilate. We don't need to fit in. We need to stand out. We need to stand up. And we need to stand forth. And we need to resist. And we need to deconstruct. And yes, there are some things that do need to be counseled because we're tired of it. But, but the problem is, the problem is, is when they pick up our tactics and they begin to use them against us. And when we don't know ourselves, we don't know how to tell them, you got that from me. You got that from me. We're not, we're not, uh, I, I was in a group of uh, people last night, and I'm not going to call this particular artist out, but this artist, uh, this is an R&B artist, recording artist, rap, trap, whatever you want to call it, white, but very much accepted amongst black people. And I showed them a video of this, uh, this young artist saying the N-word several times, singing the song in, a, in the very uh, euphemism of his career. And he's from, you know, way north. And now he's very much accepted by uh, all of his uh, black contemporary people and the people who celebrate his music. And, uh, and when I showed the, uh, the people the video yesterday, 
They were appalled. They didn't know. They were traumatized because they love his music. But his music comes out of an orientation. And now he's, a, he's, a, he's in trouble because he's started using sound bites from Dr. King and his music. And I'm not going to get into it now. You probably know who he is if you really want to research. But the truth is, is that he's always been racism. He's always been race, racist in body. He was trained that way. He was raised that way as a child. And now in his, in his uh, adult life, he is the biggest proponent of racism because he makes money off of mimicking black culture for the benefit of the preservation of his whiteness. And who knows what he is teaching his children when he gets finished selling you records and downloads. And that is prophecy. Media is prophecy in the Hebrew. Media is prophecy in the Hebrew. Media is prophecy in the Hebrew. Music is a self-fulfilling prophecy. We're indoctrinating ourselves and prophesying to ourselves with oppressors' language, with oppressors' context, and calling it relaxation, and calling it lounging, and calling it luxury, and calling it free time and downtime because we can't stand to sit in each other's presence and just be anymore. Did y'all see the Watch Stacks concert? Isaac Hayes didn't come riding in on no Benz or no Bentley. They brought that brother in the station wagon. And <laughs> tens of thousands of people got, they went crazy when Black Moses got on the stage. Y'all ain't, ain't see Jesse Jackson bringing up Black Moses? And he said, who is the, y'all don't want it. Y'all, we was at church. Rance Allen was on that same stage. He was no less full of the Holy Ghost when he was on that stage with his guitar. Y'all, y'all, y'all don't know. Y'all, y'all remember, y'all remember Bishop Rand Silent. I'll, I'll take him. I'll take him. I love him. That's my man. But I want the other one too. Give me the, when that, when that black Moses and, and Rance and all them people and Bob and all them people got on this stage before them black people and we were able to gather in the summer of soul during the time of, same time of Woodstock, black people were gathering in New York. And hearing our own prophets, hearing Mahalia, hearing Mavis Stables, hearing uh, uh, Pop Staples, hearing hearing uh, Nina Simone, hearing a uh, 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 young Stevie Wonder, hearing uh, 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 the Fifth Dimension prophesying to us about our future. No, we want to know what prophecy is. We have ignored and demonized our greatest prophets, and they didn't have collars on. And then the ones with collars on. We sure didn't listen to them, because they were old-fashioned. So, so Marcus, I'm, I'm going to prepare my exit. But as I prepare my exit, my question to the public is, what do you consider as a prophet? Who is your prophet? Does your prophet have to wear a robe? Or is your prophet on an album somewhere, contextually contextualizing your resistance to this oppression? Are we continuing the disparities that, that make up our trauma and our toxicities? Do we even raise therapy as an option? Do we legitimize somebody talking to us and us talking to somebody about the things that were done to us and the things that are done to us that we know 
almost destroyed us. Who are our real prophets? They're not just in pulpits, but don't get me wrong. They're in pulpits too, but they sure ain't in that one. They ain't at that one. Oh, what that? I won't. I'm not going to Mormon's church when I go to Detroit now. I'm going to see Dr. James Perkins. He was one of the founders of the Progressive National Baptist Convention. He was there with Dr. King. He was in the room with Raphael Warnock before he got elected. I want to go hear from Dr. Perkins. He, he's not as popular as uh, Winans on, on, the, on TBN with the white people, but, but when you say his name in some rooms down here, you, 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 they perk up when they say Dr. Perkins. And, and let me say this also. Every time an elder dies, a library burns to the ground. Why do we let our living prophets die with libraries that we never tangibilize from them? We have the future with us. They're still alive. Baba Oduno, still alive, can recount potentially the last hundred years of our existence, who has walked this country and been in every major movement that has ever existed. He's been here at the RTC when Kofa was here, and he's also been here when uh, uh, here and, and most recently uh, with, with this new administration and Matthew Williams and all that. When we don't hear these people, Will Coleman, when we don't hear these people that are alive today, we deny ourselves a roadmap of the future. There are prophets alive. They're not popular. They have to be sought out like John the Baptist. They're reed shaking in the wind. Jesus wasn't popular. Jesus was infamous. He became popular after they standardized his stuff. And, you know, white blood. I told somebody last week that y'all got the blood of Jesus and bleach confused because y'all think that the blood made you whiter, whiter than snow. You got bleach blood y'all working with. The devil is a lie. Your, your idea of salvation does not include Sankofa. Your, your idea of salvation makes you totally deny your historical context and deny the presence of your ancestors. Who do you think the great cloud of witnesses is? Ah, that's your people. That's the cloud that you came from. That is the social physiological makeup of the 70% of water that you came from. When it comes up into the heavens, it hovers over you and guides you. That's your cloud of witnesses. That is prophetic. That is prophetic. My phone is ringing. They won't call me. They want me to say something else for somebody else. I'm sorry, Marcus. You know how I am. I can't help it. I'll be, in, I'll, be trying to, I'll be trying to be academic and nice. And, you know, maybe somebody need to, maybe I need to not drink coffee. Maybe I need somebody got something else I can drink. <laughs> yeah, I think you, all of that in one. You can't, you, you, you are academic, but that preacher in you, every single time, it, it, you just can't hold it down. I'm sorry, y'all. Jeremiah said it best. It is like fire. Shut up in your bones, huh? Yes, it is. It really is. I cannot deny it. I, I try to be everything else. I tried. Listen, I tried. They, they wouldn't <laughs> let me on stage. They wouldn't let me on stage with Tank. They wouldn't let me be singing. You know, they won't let me sing what I want to sing. You know what I mean? They want me singing. I'll sing it. I'll sing it for you. I'll sing it for y'all. They, they told me going to the other concert. Okay, I'll go. Well, you know, what I, what I appreciate about you, Bishop, is, is your authenticity, right? Like you, you, uh, you are the same yeah. yesterday, today. <laughs> That's why I get on folks' nerves. I can't stand it. I can't stand it. I love you, baby. I love you.
I love you. Y'all don't know. I'm just, give me, come on, give me Lenny Williams. Come on now. Y'all heard the prophet? <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Y'all didn't hear the prophecy. It was a, y'all know. Y'all sung the O in church that y'all don't hear the Lenny Williams. You don't hear the Lord in Lenny Williams, do you? All right. I'll leave them alone. They, don't, they didn't read. All they got to, you know what? I can legitimize it. Just read James Cone. Uh, uh, the Gospel in the Blues. This is the Gospel in the Blues. What's the, what's the, what's the book? James Cone wrote about the 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 revelation and the connection between the gospel or the spirituals. I'm sorry, and the blues, the spirituals and the blues, and how they're connected. Our 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 blues, if you look at it, is very similar to our mm. our gospel. But but the, but the reality is is that is our particular theology and we're still we're still building it we're still building it we we need theologians we need theologians we need academies not just i'm not just talking about so y'all can get a license to preach i'm not talking about that i'm talking about so y'all can give yourself a license to think you got a license to preach and no license to think that's a problem Ooh, these sound bites gonna be good from this one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna. I had another question. I think we'll, we'll save that for round two. And, okay. I, and, and what I want to explore really is the idea of what it means to be a truth teller in an age of alternate, alternate facts, alternative facts, right? And so there's a lot of. Uh, you know, talk about what's true, what's what's not true, what's fact, what's fiction. Um, and there's a lot of conspiracy theories going on, right? Mm -hmm. That really is driving a lot of our prophetic in many popular prophetic churches, whether we know it or not, people are really prophesying conspiracy theories. And I wanna explore that in the, under the category of truth and what that really means for the prophet. Uh, but we'll do that, I think, next time. I would love for you to um, to kind of share what you're doing, what's happening in, in, in your world right now. If, if you want to talk about anything in particular, I think there's a Black Theologian Project also happening. And so you also have written. You have yes. some material you've written, yes. et cetera. So, yeah, share with the audience. Okay, we, we have uh, the Black Theologian Project. You can go to black, uh, blacktheologian.com. You can fill out what right now there is a, a survey there, uh, uh, a, a pandemic survey, but that website will change. It, it is uh, there is an emerging project. We've made some discoveries in Canada uh, that are close to the uh, Harriet Tubman uh, property. And of course, uh, across Lake Erie is uh, my great my fourth great grandfather, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the, 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 the Second Baptist Church, which is now the Mount Calvary Church was the home and the beginning of the Anti-Slavery Baptist Association there in Niles, Michigan. Uh, and uh, he escaped again from the plantation in Culpeper. So the, the Harriet Tubman Church is about five hours from a grandfather's church. And then there's another church where the Bishop Morris Brown uh, uh, had, uh, he, he planted this church and then he had a stroke and he died not too long after this. So this could have been uh, one of his last uh, physical churches. He founded the uh, Canadian Annual Conference of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, who was uh, probably at that time not too long called the Free African Society. Uh, and, and so the, the research that we're doing in the Black Theologian Project uh, has to do with um, creating resources uh, both here in America and in Canada 
for uh, the contextualizing of the personhood of the black theologian. It has been illegal, I say, for the black theologian to imagine heaven and a haven in their own personal context because even uh, the ideas of heaven and haven uh, included slave and slave master theology and slave master concept and I and I'm I'm not going to heaven where I got to clean up uh, that's not the heaven or the haven I want to be in I want to be in something where God legitimizes my identity just as much as any other identity and so uh, the context and the concept of the black theologian project will bring out the personhood and this will be a lifelong work we're also working on uh, acquiring a property here that we found uh, in the last few months uh, that will house uh, the artifacts and the library and uh, and I won't make the announcement here but there is an announcement coming uh, that we find the research here and there'll be a, a property here and a property in Canada uh, that will uh, uh, house these findings and be a place for me to work out my soul salvation if you will that includes my uh, my sacred Sankofa uh, and and I will will be able to retain those things that uh, were behind me. Uh, of course, we have a literature that we have produced over the years. All of that literature, not some, but all of that literature is in reproduction and reconsideration under the liberation context, the liberation banner. I'm interrogating my own writings. I'm going back to my writings, and I want to see where I was in league with anything that would have been antithetical to my identity. And so if people see a great pause in my ministry, they say, where has Hackley been? Hackley's been somewhere in the library. Hackley's been somewhere studying. Hackley's been uh, doing what Paul had to do, doing what Jesus had to do, which is sit down for a minute and reorient yourself so that you can come out with a more focused and accurate target to where your ministry should be pinpointed. Because when you come out, we don't want you trying to save everybody. We want you to save the body. We want you to save who you're assigned to save. We want you to be specific. Uh, the Bible says, happy is a man that have the youth. It's a quiver full of youth. It's like a quiver full of arrows, the scripture says. Because why? Because we have to hit the targets. So I don't want to have influence without focus and without targeted change that's effective you know and i i said this a long time ago if i am somebody's prophet or bishop or apostle or whatever people call me i am first that to my people i have to figure this out so that i don't reproduce the trauma and the toxicities that have preserved and yes i've had my own challenges but how here's here's my question how other can a black writer write unless they bleed into the pen. Our books are made of our own blood. And, and that blood doesn't wash us white as snow. In fact, that blood turns black after it's been sitting on the paper for a while. And we need to, we need to have people who bleed into the pen, who take their, their lives and work it out on paper and work it out in libraries and work it out in conversations and keep the academic calling. Some of us are not called to pulpits. Some of us are called to podiums and lecterns, and we're called to academia. That is a legitimate calling in God. 
Some of us are called to cemetery. Yes, seminary is a cemetery. It is a place where bad theology goes to die. I, I will agree. It is a cemetery. Your bat, you will not come out of cemetery without being raised in the resurrection of source criticism and to be able to criticize where you got the books and where the scrolls exist and know the locations of the writers and the climate and the topography of the places and the locations. And so you'll come out with a more informed sermon or a more informed rhetoric, if you will. That's what we need. We don't just need low-level conversations that say, oh, let me just talk down here so folk can understand me as if we are not brilliant. No, we're smarter than that. I'm calling us up higher. That is the Black Theologian Project. Find that at blacktheologian.com. You can also find me at jeremiahackley.org or Brother Phenomenal, as they like to call me. That's what they call me. My daughters love it. Eden Phenomenal, Zoe Phenomenal. You know, they're coming in, in the same context. I'm raising them in this context to know who they are, to know that when they get to a certain space and time, they don't have to apologize for being black. They just have to simply be it. And, uh, and that's enough for daddy. And that's going to be enough for their community. That's going to be enough for the world. And you teach your children the same. Teach them what their name means, as Marcus said earlier. If you don't teach your children the significance of their name, the name is the nature, that every time that they say their name or their name is called, they're answering to a prophetic assignment. Their identity is more prophetic than any title that they will acquire. And the titles simply reflect. Why another degree, Doc? Why another program? It's not about the title that comes. It's not about the piece of paper that I get at the end. It's about all of the pieces of paper that I've opened up to get to that one piece of paper. And if I got to go and get me another piece of paper to get through some more papers, I'll go through that one too. I'll do this for the rest of my life. I'm going to it. Profound. That that is that is profound. I um and I love the 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 genius and the brilliance that you speak to, in particular, not just as a preacher, but as a theologian. Um, I will say, I mean, I I spent three years um in divinity school. I, I went to seminary at Howard University and ah, um holy yeah. <laughs> Holy, Holy Howard. And uh, I can say just listening to you. See, let me tell you something. Here you came with, 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 when the Lord was on the on the ground. It was Dr. Kane Hofeld in the city. <laughs> My God. Absolutely. Absolutely. I missed that one. I was I was around there, but I was I was somewhere listening to Marvin Wines. The devil was <laughs> I should have been over there. I was we, we, got, uh, we got some new legends at Howard. Okay, so thank you. Oh you yeah, y'all got to, y'all got to, you know, y'all, you know what I mean? I, I know Duke is mad today. Hallelujah. 16, 19. I hear you. I see what you're right. That's right. Don't, That's don't right. worry. The ITC, you know, you know, well, let me say this. The Morehouse School of Religion from 1867, thank God. The Benjamin Elijah Mays. The anointing is still here. Joseph Evans. I love you, Howard, now. Now, he ain't going to come against it. I love Dean Pierce. I love y'all. But that Evans, when he stands up, praise the Lord. <laughs> he stands tall. Understood. Y'all see what I'm wearing. Y'all praise the Lord. Amen. <laughs> blue, and I got up. Amen. That's what we repping our, repping our set, huh? Gangsters for the Lord. That's right. <laughs>
Hey, you know, and, and, and again, I mean, I just want to highlight the fact, you know, even in this season of my own life, I'm reflecting on the need to almost retreat and go back to school. I mean, you, that's how much uh, you, uh, I think, pre in, in instigate and, and really stir up in the lives of, of people who, who know you. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't hurt, you know, it doesn't, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know what, it's not a step backward. It's a step. Not at all. It's a step forward. I mean, you, or a step no, deeper. Oh yeah. Step deeper. There's no shame. In fact, if you had a degree and you wanted to go back and study again with these new professors or new thinkers, it wouldn't hurt you to go get another one. Yeah. Go get another one. If you want what's current, go get another one. And, and, and in particular in today's context, when you, when you're dealing with a, a popular church that sometimes demonizes mm. and or devalues theological education because of our understanding limited by that, limited to the fact that we think prophetic, you know, in terms of how we think about what it means to be truly prophetic. We always think of prophetic as a download, very ethereal, disconnected from history, you know, God speaking to me in my private closet. And, I'm the first one who heard it. Absolutely. Heard it and so we run, we run the social media and we got a word, a word from the Lord, right? And so, yeah, I mean, that that kind of stuff is exactly what I want to, to critique. That's the whole purpose of this, so that we can advance our understanding of what it tru truly means to be prophetic today, in particular, as we think about education history that should form how uh, we communicate what God is is, is yes. ultimately trying to do. So, uh, Marcus, Marcus, when you said that, this also came to mind. If we don't do this, Marcus, what you what you're mentioning, and we are demonized by dumbness, we will be assimilating to something that's less than the God that's in us that's calling to something deeper, deep calling unto deep. If you're a real prophet, you really feel like you have a real prophetic assignment to this generation. Your prophetic calling should be able to last the interrogation of seminary. You need to submit your gift to people that can critique your source, your walk with God, your self-care, your, your identity, your, your philosophies up against clinical philosophies. And people who heard the same word that you are just hearing today, 200 years ago in a book, and you can read yourself and read the rest of what came after that, and then go back and pray, and then go back and hear again. And, and, and then let's have that conversation about the prophetic after you have gone into the deep that calleth to the deep, so that when you stand up to talk, that people are not hearing uh, 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 nothing against your laptop, the surface level, uh, <laughs> surface level that they get into the garden. My God, <laughs> you know, I got to mess with y'all. You know, I got to mess with, I got to mess with all non Mac users. And this is not a commercial for anybody. I just need you to understand, be saved, be saved, baptized in the name. Amen. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm on a Mac right now. Oh, look at God. I knew God. I knew the Lord was going to bring you the right direction. You know, just trust God. That's all you. But but, but I also have a surface because both were in the garden. Yeah, well, that's, hey, listen. <laughs> I don't have nothing against the surface. You know, I don't have nothing against it. 
But again, the deep calls front to the Mac. <laughs> Something like that. Bishop, thank you. Thank you for, for spending some time with me. I, I enjoyed listening to you today. I hope it wasn't too much. And I would love to do this again. Thank you to, to my audience for, for listening. I hope that this was informative um, and formative. I also hope that you come back as we explore this topic even more. There's a lot to talk about. Um, again, welcome to the Prophetic Times and Seasons podcast, where we are reimagining what it truly means to be both spiritual and prophetic in today's world. Thank you again, and I hope to see you soon. Absolutely. Good to see you all.